0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Good evening. Welcome to this evening's program of the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Gerald Harris. I'm chair of the club's Technology and Society member-led forum, and I will be your host for this evening's program. The Commonwealth Club is America's longest standing public forum. And especially at this time in our history, we are proud to maintain our commitment to keeping the public informed about key local, national, and world developments, the club was founded by citizens who had the goal of assuring that the wealth of the uh, of, provided by nature in all of its many forms is widely shared and not wrongly exploited or wasted for the benefit of a few. The focus of the technology uh, and society member-led forum is to expose members to developments in science and technology, and in the process generate thinking and ideas about the use and commercialization of technology and how it can be used in creating a better world for all. The Commonwealth Club, this is where real people meet to discuss real issues and take real action, a place to be in the know. We wanna welcome the participation of all of our uh, members uh, into this program. Uh, uh, information about the additional programs at the Commonwealth Club can be found at on the web at www.commonwealthclub.org. On behalf of the club, I would like to thank the Shan Zuckerberg Initiative and the Headco Foundation for their support in providing for the club's digital and online communication. Now to our speaker on how the National Science Foundation supports and translates innovation. Dr. Ben Schrag joined the U.S. National Science Foundation as a program director in the small business programs in 2009 and has worked across several of their portfolio areas, including advanced materials, instrumentation, hardware, nanotechnology, and advanced manufacturing. He became a policy liaison for the SBIR, or the small business part of it, and the STTR. Uh, I think that stands for the, oh, he'll give me the the, the correct uh, working out of that. Um, But Ben won the National Science Foundation's Director Award in 2014 and 2016. Prior to being with the NSF, he was Director of Research and Development at at Micromagnetics, where he led a, Uh, development effort to commercialize a new magnetic imaging tool for for semiconductor metrology. During this time, he also served as a visiting scientist at Brown University. Ben received his PhD in physics from Brown University. Welcome, Ben.
0: Thank you so much, Gerald. Thanks for having me. And thanks to the Commonwealth Club of California for the opportunity.
1: The floor is yours. All right. Let me
0: share my slides here. Okay, great. So thanks again. Um, I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes, and I'm really excited to take any questions you have and try to uh, dig deeper into anything that's of interest. So uh, as you mentioned, Gerald, I work for the National Science Foundation. Um, I'm going to start the talk with uh, an introduction to what the NSF is, for those who don't know. I'm going to talk then a little bit about um, the need that I think that kind of the programs that, that you mentioned address uh, for the nation and for the world. And then I'm going to talk about how we support uh, innovation. And the term innovation is, is really widely used. And so I, I really want to start here by talking about when we talk about innovation in the kind of scientific community, what we really are focusing on is uh, the process by which new discoveries and new um, scientific breakthroughs go from the lab bench and become um, things that are impacting the market and impacting society. Right. So basically um, how does a new discovery get to the taxpayer, get to the citizenry. And that's, when we talk about innovation, that's really the process that we're going to be focusing on. So starting with the national science foundation, Uh, the NSF is a federal agency. We're part of the federal government in the United States we are independent. We don't have a, a cabinet secretary. We're part of the executive branch. And um, we are about a $8.5 billion agency, which in federal terms makes us medium-sized. And our hallmark is that we're the um, only agency that's really focused on um, promoting the progress of basic science, basic research. We say, when we say basic research, I'll talk about that in a second, but the real focus is um, research for the sake of understanding the universe, right? So research without necessarily any uh, practical motive in mind. And so the mission of the NSF is to promote the progress of science and thereby to advance the national health, the prosperity and welfare of the country, and to secure the national defense. I'm going to talk about... Um, Different types of research, and so I don't want to go too much into the weeds here, but um, I just want to be able to distinguish when we talk about research and and R&D that um, there's a few different types of research that we refer to that I'm going to be using, and I want to make sure folks understand them. Um, So basic research, as I mentioned, is most of what my foundation, my agency does, and it is a research to understand the the universe, to acquire new knowledge without any particular application or use. In mind, right? So, just blue sky research um, to understand things. Um, there is other kinds of research that happen, especially when uh, there's a new scientific finding and there is a potential use or practical aim. And so, basically, in, in many cases, when there's a new scientific discovery and uh, there is some potentially practical use for it, uh, it will start as basic research, and then it will pra- it will proceed through applied research, which is. Uh, still research still kind of done by scientists um but really directed towards achieving some objective that's known and then as that um as that is progressing, things will go towards what what is called experimental development, which is really um the research is starting to be proven, and now you're kind of leading to the more um practical and more um predictable aspects of basically creating a new product or service or process that embodies that research. And so we call that experimental development. And this is typically the stage of things that happens um, when a new discovery goes from the lab and then eventually becomes introduced into society. So um, I think we've just had the second slide here. So this is the slide I was on. Um, I basically have walked through it. I think we've covered this. Thanks for the reminder. Sorry, I do not know why I didn't take. Um, So, um, moving on to some numbers that um, kind of summarize the NSF, Um, we have, uh, as any federal agency, we have a fairly big reach. Um, The things I would point out here uh, are that uh, the top left here, uh, 93% of the funding that Congress appropriates to us um, does go um, into NSF and then, based on decisions made by the NSF, goes back out into the community of scientists and engineers Again, mostly to fund this basic research, curiosity-driven exploration. Um, And so we do that by soliciting research proposals from across different kinds of scientists and engineers across the country and evaluating the proposals that we feel are most meritorious. So we make about 11,000 awards per year, um, grants and contracts. And um, those go out to support about 300,000 people in the scientific community in various roles. Finally, we're very proud that um, we've funded some of the best and brightest. The lower right uh, data point here is 253, which is the number of Nobel Prize winners that have been NSF supported since our inception. So the way that we, uh, that we fund is broadly, which is to say um, we fund all the different areas of science and engineering where there is new knowledge to be obtained. And so we fund biological sciences and engineering, mathematics, physics, and chemistry, computer science, and engineering. Uh, We fund the social sciences, including economics. And uh, we also have some parts of NSF that focus on uh, specific uh, things that are important to make sure that we can strengthen the scientific workforce of tomorrow. Uh, For example, the education and training of new uh, scientists and engineers, and things that basically allow us to um, try to integrate science into the larger community. We also have a part of NSF that supports um, international collaborations with um, scientists in other other countries. So a few things that you may um, not know that NSF was involved in helping to get off the ground. Um, As I mentioned, we were founded in 1950s in the um, aftermath of World War II. Um, Early on at NSF, the um, MRI, the Magnetic Resonance Imaging Technique, was supported in its discovery stage by NSF. Um, In the 1960s, we funded a lot of fundamental research that led to fiber optics, which is the backbone of telecommunications. Uh, 3D printing, which is a technology that's kind of exploded, got its first um, basic research foundations in the 1980s. In the 1990s, we funded a project uh, through a program called the Digital Libraries Program to a couple of grad students at Stanford um, named Larry Page and Sergey Brin. That was actually the foundational work that led to the foundation of Google, Um, and uh, we've also funded the basic um, polymerase chain reaction technique, PCR, which is the basis for some of the COVID vaccines that are now available. Uh, NSF is unique among the federal government agencies in that um, we really do focus on um, basic research. So a lot of different federal agencies provide funding for different kinds of research, but for this early stage blue sky exploratory research, we are the primary source of funding um, in a number of really important areas of research. And so this is kind of the place where a lot of these discoveries um, are created. So that's a basic uh, background of NSF. And as I've mentioned, uh, most of what we do is, is research without a practical mission in mind. But uh, the subject of my talk here today is innovation, which is to fund the process of, um, as I mentioned, bringing new discoveries into society, into the market. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, why an agency that focuses primarily on basic research should also be involved in what we would call translational research, translational meaning you're translating new discoveries into, into reality. So I'm going to get a little bit, I'm going to zoom out a little bit, and I'm going to introduce this idea of the Valley of Death. I'm sure some of you are familiar of it, but this is really the core concept that drives our um, intention to fund this kind of work. And so the idea of the Valley of Death is that for any new discovery or new scientific technology, um, it starts as a new aha moment, a uh, new discovery. And then it goes through a process uh, that's not totally predictable, but usually goes through um, basic science, as I mentioned, through an applied stage where you're developing prototypes of a new product, um, testing it out. Maybe it, it doesn't work a few times before you get it to work. And then eventually it, it's created successfully and it's, it's kind of scaled up. And uh, in the case of a new product or service, it, it goes and it finally finds its way into the market where consumers can use it. And so um, the bottom of this slide, the horizontal axis, is basically that translation. On the left, you have discovery, and on the right, you have the creation of a new technology in society. And the um, the graph here, the valley of death, is basically uh, what happens when you consider the amount of resources that's available at the different stages of this process. And um, the valley is basically uh, formed because there's two, two big... Um, supporters of of parts of this process. Um, On the left side of here, with the basic research exploratory stage, uh, there is a significant amount of federal funding from the NSF and from other uh, government agencies and from universities to fund the early stage discovery research to to learn new things about the universe. Uh, So that's the left side of the graph. And at that stage, there's a fairly well-established mechanism to fund and support that kind of activity. Uh, on the other side of the, um, of the graph, when you're talking about a product that's been scientifically established and you need money to uh, to kind of prove it out, to kind of optimize it, uh, that's where the private sector is very good. Large corporations typically fund most of their research and development funding into, again, this is called um, development of uh, of a new product. And so the, the term valley of death is, has been kind of recognized for about 30 years, which is to say there is a, a lack of funding and a lack of support for people trying to get from one side of this um, of this valley to the other. There's not necessarily a good solution once you're past the basic research phase and before you've got the science worked out enough so that the private sector is willing to jump in and support things. And so um, somebody has to fill this. And again, um, the punchline is that the NSF is trying to play a role here. And so let me talk a little bit about um, why we think that the government needs to play a role here. Uh, so this is a trend graph of um, research and development funding. This is national funding at, in the United States as a percentage of uh, GDP. And it's a little hard to see, but the um, the blue line is the total uh, R&D funding, which is slightly trending up. It's about 25 to 3% of GDP. And the important thing to note here is that the federal funding, uh, which includes the NSF, um, spiked during the 50s and 60s, during the Sputnik and the space race, and has been kind of slowly declining uh, as a percentage of GDP since then. And the um, the funding from the private sector, from businesses, has been slowly going up. Um, so what this basically means is that the, um, the left side of the Valley of Death, the basic research side, uh, that side is um, slowly decreasing. Uh, the amount of support for that early stage research is decreasing. Now, the support for the... Um, business funded research, the the applied development research is going up. But um, one thing that has also been happening as time goes on is that um, large corporations, which are typically the ones that have the ability to fund research and development, are starting to shift and have been shifting for decades away from the kind of long-term thinking uh, research and development that was once very common. So once upon a time, we had big long-lived research labs like Bell Labs, IBM, and they put lots of resources into um, this long-term thinking, long-term research and development um, in lots of different areas. Um, But over time, uh, the the public companies especially have become less likely to do that. There's a number of reasons for that that are explored in the academic literature, but part of it is that um, there's more focus on short-term results um, in, in recent years. Part of it is that companies are more at risk to, um, to fail as is shown in my plot here. So companies are, are less likely to be, able, to be able to guarantee a future in 10 or 20 years. There's more turnover in the, for example, in the S&P 500. And so companies are just less willing to do the kind of early stage uh, basic or applied research that once was very common for, uh, for many of these uh, companies. So it's, it's pretty clear that it may not be the solution to have uh, corporate funding of this kind of valley of death. So the other thing that you would naturally think about is what about uh, the investment sector? Uh, This is California. We have a a thriving venture capital industry. And the the goal of venture capital is to, again, get new technologies um, from inception across this valley to to commercial success. But it's it's been the case that while the total amount of venture capital funding has grown uh, in a healthy way, um, venture capital uh, has tended to focus more and more on certain areas of the economy. And a lot of those don't have any new science in them, right? They they are um great companies, but there's not necessarily real deep technology or new scientific discoveries in those companies. And so if you look at the graph here, the largest four uh bars here, the, the light blue, the pink, and the green, and the orange, are either software or healthcare and pharmaceuticals. And you can see. A lot of the new things that new discoveries happen in, the industrial goods, materials, energy, and a lot of really important social, socially important areas receive a very small amount of venture capital funding. Um, so most of the venture capital funding is going to things where there's not a lot of new scientific risk. And that's largely because these kinds of um, companies that have new scientific discoveries at their core take a long time to prove out. It takes a long time to get things to work. It takes a lot of money to make the the technology work, and it's a little more difficult as an investment proposition uh, versus, say, a company that's a software company where things can move more quickly. So venture venture capital has not historically supported a large amount of um, funding of real new deep science other than in the pharmaceutical and some other areas of the medical uh, area. Put another way, we have this quote from, this is Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, and this is a technology review article from a few years ago. Um, You promised me Mars colonies, instead I got Facebook, Uh, basically meaning that um, a lot of these investors who are putting money in are putting money into relatively, um, relatively mundane things without a lot of new scientific breakthroughs or new kind of technological disruptions involved in them. So this is basically underlining this 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 point that the Valley of Death is a is a existing and a growing problem um, that needs to be addressed, and so this kind of leads to NSF's forays into this into this process. And again, the goal here is um, NSF is is already has already continued to fund the left side of the Valley of Death and basic research, and that we have created very recently uh, a, a number of programs and a new directorate at nsf that is attempting to actually create new publicly financed programs that help new technology get across the valley of death so i'm going to talk we have a number of programs and i'll I'll list them but i'm going to talk really about three of them in particular um, and i'm happy to leave you all with information about uh, how to learn more about these or other programs that we run Um, so the programs here um, are all part of this new directorate that the NSF stood up uh, earlier this year. Um, and they all are different ways for um, the NSF to provide catalytic funding to um, help various groups, universities, or entrepreneurs to um, to take their steps across the valley of death, or to at least get started. And there's a number of ways that we've conceived that we can help in that process um, that I'll talk about, but there's kind of three big ones um, that are the the lion's share of the funding that we put out. So there's a number of things that we can do in the government. Um, uh, the top left corner is accelerate, so we can accelerate, and meaning that we can actually provide funding to help people do R and D, to to prove out new discoveries, to prove out new technology, to actually make it work in the lab. Uh, we can help them to demonstrate it. We can help them to to partner um, or to get partnerships with other funders or other partners in the ecosystem by providing some catalytic funding, um, we can help educate, we can help prepare the people who are going to try to take this journey across the valley of death. And most of the time, those are scientists and engineers um, who don't have any formal training in entrepreneurship. We can help educate them and get them prepared to, um, to take those steps about how to, how, to, how to really be entrepreneurs in this space. And we can help translate, we can help them directly. We can support companies directly to take this into the market themselves. And so we have programs across these and uh, in these different areas. Um, over time, the NSF has kind of um, developed these programs in response to what we viewed as gaps in the ecosystem of, of science and innovation. And so the um, some of the programs were created in the 70s, a, a time of economic stagnation. Um, some of them have been created very recently, um, but only, only this year were, did we actually create a directorate within the foundation to specifically focus on this particular problem that I've described. All right, Um, and so this is the Directorate for Technology, Innovation and Partnerships, which is where I work and and, uh, the programs that I talk about are all housed here. Uh, Our goal is to help all of the discoveries that all of our colleagues in the other parts of NSF have made to uh, take things that have practical implications and help them get it out of the lab and into the marketplace and into the taxpayers' hands. All right, so let me give you three examples of programs that we fund. America's Seed Fund is a, a program called the, uh, the Small Business Innovation Research Program. That's the congressional name. We call it America's Seed Fund. Uh, this is a, a program by which we fund um, small businesses and specifically mostly brand-new startups who have new deep technology innovations new risky and high impact technologies and we give them money directly to prove out the technology give them money to do research and development uh, to start making sure the technology is going to work and to start building a prototype um, this is a phase program and it provides non-dilutive funding of up to about two million dollars to these small businesses and we're looking at um, a number of things in this process we're looking at the Scientific merits, the technical merit of the technology, we want to make sure it, we think it might work. We're looking at the commercial potential. Like any investor, um, will this technology actually solve a problem in the market? And therefore, is there a way you can build a business model uh, for the company that will make the company grow and create jobs? And then finally, broader impacts. You know, We're not just any investor, We're uh, we're part of the US government. And so we're not just looking at financial returns, we're looking at the benefits of society. And so a lot of the companies we fund may have uh, smaller markets in dollar terms, but may have profound societal impacts. They may be educating students or cleaning up the environments or helping to combat um, inequality in society. And so we have the the ability and the mandate as servants of the taxpayer to, to think about the broader impact on society when we make these investments. Uh, This is a program that supports about $220 million of awards per year. Uh, That touches about 800 companies across the country at any given time. And you can see from the pie chart here, they span the entire range of any new technology that you can think of, from semiconductors to materials to robotics to to new chemicals to new software, nanotechnology and life sciences, medical devices, pharmaceuticals. the goal here is to be inclusive and to let as many great entrepreneurs and innovators compete as possible. Our focus at NSF is really not just on uh, what would be considered a small business, which the government would say any, any small business below, any business below 500 employees is technically a small business. We focus on startups and um, most of the companies we fund have fewer than five employees. And the reason for that is that um, these companies are typically the ones with the brand new risky technology, which is where we think we can make the most impact. And they're also the companies that actually create the most new net jobs. And this is data from the Kauffman Foundation. And so um, we are trying to help these companies succeed. And one of the ways we measure impact is by, is by job creation. Startups are a great vehicle to do that. Startups are also a great vehicle to, um, to help rapidly develop uh, an unproven technology. They, they can move faster than other types of companies. So here's some data on the companies that we fund. They're mostly small and very new. And actually, we're very proud of the fact that every year, uh, roughly 60% of all of the companies we support are getting their first ever government uh, award. And so you may you may have heard stories about uh, Beltway Bandits who are getting lots and lots of government funding, but that's not the case uh, for our program. Uh, most commonly, uh, companies will get support from us in their first couple of years, and then pretty quickly they'll go graduate to private investment or other sources of funding. We've had great success in our portfolio in terms of outputs. Um, Over the last six years, we've invested about $1 billion of funding in these companies. Over the same time period, uh, that same group of companies has raised about $14 billion in follow-on funding from investors of various kinds. Um, and have had about 200 successful exits, which is the way that many of our companies um, reach their eventual success point. Those can include getting acquired by a, a competitor or a partner, or by going public uh, in the market. The next program I'm going to talk about kind of spe- stemmed from our work in the small business program that I just talked about. And as I mentioned, we're providing funding to those small businesses to fund research and developments, But over time, and having supported and worked with so many of these companies, um, we realized that you know most of them actually don't fail because they they're not able to do the R and D. They're actually mostly failing not due to the technology reasons. They're mostly failing due to market reasons. They're failing because uh, their customers don't actually need what they're building, or they're they're being competed. And so, because we're supporting these companies, um, we can give them all the R and D funding in the world. But if the company is developing something that they don't understand the need for that's still going to be a company that will probably fail and so when we saw this need we basically went and tried to figure out you know how can we help not only help these companies develop their technology but how can we help them understand their business model and their market so that they can lower the chance of of failing due to market reasons and so that led to um Program that we call the I-Corps program, the Innovation Corps program that NSF launched about 10 years ago. And the the fundamental situation here is that most of these discoveries that are created are in the hands of a of a scientist or an engineer. They, they're the ones making the discovery. A lot of times they're at a university and um, they don't have training in business. They they know how to, to do the research, they don't know how to do the business. And so the question is: how do we train them to, to understand? What their technology means, what what it what it says, what its potential is for, for their customers and for the market, um, and that's the I-Corps program. And so this is a program of uh, experiential education, and the best practice in the private sector when you have a new technology and you don't know who needs it is you go talk to customers and you ask them what their problems are. And so this program essentially brings in entrepreneurial leaders to teach groups of researchers to um, to do a process called customer discovery, where they're basically understanding, hypothesizing and then proving or disproving what they think the market need is for their technology. And they do that by talking to a um, hundred different customers in a seven week period, uh, coached by NSF trained instructors. And some of those teams go through a hundred interviews with customers and realize, there's actually not a need in the market for this this innovation. There's not a reason to push it further, and that's fine. And then they they can go back and and work on their next research project. For a lot of these companies, however, they um they do they do talk to customers. They realize there is a need for what they're doing, and a lot of times they'll then create a startup. And so that's about 1,900 teams that we've put through the process, and about a hundred about a thousand of them have actually um resulted in the formation of a new startup company around that technology and so this is obviously a feeder into the small business program i just talked about we have ICOR um, nodes at universities and university sites around the country and there's also a lot of regional programs um, in different places and states and universities that run versions of the icor program it's also now been adapted across the rest of the federal government to help folks doing research at those agencies to understand the commercial path for, for what they're doing. A uh, final program I'll talk about is called Partnerships for Innovation. Uh, this is a program um, for universities. Um, and instead of um, what UNSF usually does, which is we're, we're gonna give folks money to do basic research, to, to publish papers and find out new science. This is, a, this is basically a money to that same researcher still within a university but to really um, to do some more work on the technology specifically intended to be applied research uh, to basically um, start to think about what are the implications, what are the commercial implications of this technology? Could it be something that uh, makes sense to, to basically start a company or to, to think about licensing to, a, to an existing company? So this is a, an R&D program that doesn't, it doesn't require anybody to jump out and start a company who's not ready yet, but it does let them start to explore the commercial implications of, of a new discovery and this is something that's typically based on uh, prior nsf funding to the basic research and it's also something where all of the all of these teams that go through this program also go through the icor program so they can also understand the commercial side of their research as well all right i'm gonna i have a couple examples of how this process works um, and specifically uh, around a given technology and how these programs can work together to start with a a basic scientific discovery and then go toward a commercial success story. I'm not sure if I have time for all of them, but I'm going to talk about a couple of them. Uh, Diligent Robotics is a startup company that um, started back in 2008. A a professor at the University of uh, Texas named Andrea Tomaz got basic funding uh, in robotics from the NSF um, through a number of basic research awards. that work went on for several years, and in 2015, um, she um, felt like this um, this work she was doing, which is about how to basically develop intelligent robotics uh, that can work alongside people, um, might have the commercial implications. Uh, she and a colleague went through the i program and decided that there is a need for the technology and that that technology was going to be useful in the hospital setting and, uh, and specifically to... Um, to have a robot that's autonomous that works alongside physicians and caregivers to basically support the lower the lower value tasks like gathering supplies and delivering things around the hospital so that the caregivers can spend more of their time um, with patients. They uh, went through i They got uh, awards from the small business programs that I mentioned, phase one and phase two. And then in 2020, they raised money from investors and launched a pilot in several hospitals, um, actually right in time for COVID. And so these, these robots um, were actually um, working alongside caregivers during COVID when there was so much stress on the system. And so you'll, you'll find these diligent robotics, this robot's called Moxie. Uh, they are around the country in a number of hospitals now being, being rolled out uh, at force. And they actually, this company also raised additional funding um, from investors earlier this year. So again, this is a 15-year process from basic scientific investment by NSF through translation and then into the private sector support and piloting and rollout to the customer that we'd like to see. Uh, another company with a similar story, um, this is a, a couple of grad students who met at the University of Colorado, and they had a research about how to, um, how to basically uh, inform and control the growth of the root structure of, a, of particular kinds of mushrooms. This is what's called mycelium. It's the tough root structure that's, uh, that fungus creates when it grows. And so that's obviously an interesting thing to do, but it's not clear what the importance is of that. And so this team went through the, the I-Corps program as well um, and then got funded for um, NSF phase one and phase two. And what they ended up doing with the technology was that this is actually a um, a great technology to create as an alternative source of protein. It's a it's a fungal-based protein, but you can actually, by controlling the material, you can actually make it have a texture of, of like a steak or of chicken, right, which is the very difficult thing to do with alternative proteins. You know, there's a lot of different kinds of ground meats, but the hard part has always been replicating the texture of meat. And so this company um, eventually um, figured out that's the use, um, did a bunch of work to create... Um, alternative proteins, alternative steaks and chicken they raised 50 million dollars last year from investors and a couple months ago got David Chang to be their global ambassador and they have limited amounts of their of their of their proteins that you can buy for consumption through their website. Unfortunately um, those um, those orders sell out in about seven minutes and so um, they're still working to scale up production of this new kind of substitute uh, for meat um i'm going to skip the next one this is a This is a more scientific tool, but I want to tell one more story and then I'd love to take any questions um The last um, story I have is a company called marinus analytics so this is a um this is an undergraduate student named Emily Kennedy. She was a student in computer science at Carnegie Mellon about ten years ago. Uh, when she was a teenager, she uh, was in Europe on a trip and she actually observed um, a process of of human trafficking. She actually saw Something happening that she later realized was um actually the trafficking of 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 people who were um basically slaves um and she basically decided that she wanted to do something about that horrible problem and so when she got to Carnegie Mellon, she studied computer science and when she was a senior and trying to think about a senior project, she wondered if there was a way to use artificial intelligence to um to to basically apply in the internet and to try to to try to basically track human traffickers. And so um, there's a lot of kind of illicit parts of the internet where this human trafficking goes on. And uh, she basically, as part of her senior project, de- developed uh, facial recognition AI that helps to track these victims of human trafficking and to potentially find and rescue them. Uh, that company, after she graduated, uh, went through, again, the i program to understand who would use that software and how best to um, to, to develop it. Uh, she launched a company called Marinus Analytics um, very shortly thereafter. And that that uh, company brought to uh, reality a new kind of uh, software that is actually now used by law enforcement in the U.S. government to help find and bring to justice human traffickers and to save the victims of human trafficking. And there was a news item um, recently where um, just in 2019, I don't know the newer numbers, but in 2019, they were able to identify 3,800 victims of human trafficking using this new software technology. So this is the kind of social impact that uh, NSF is so proud to support. Uh, And that is all I have. I'd love to take any questions.
1: Okay. Um, That was an amazing piece of uh, of information you shared with us. And so thank you so much again. Uh, I've been tracking a few questions uh, from the audience and then I'm going to throw in a uh a few my myself here, so um one of the questions in fact if i don't know if you still you still have your slides up can can you go down to like slide number thirteen and um uh, because I think this question was triggered by me and maybe some other people as well um and I think this slide shows uh, one yeah no no one more back I'm sorry maybe number twelve yeah. Ah, here we go. Yeah, and so uh, the the question is, how are we competing with other countries, and particularly maybe China, because it maybe comes up in terms of you know R and D funding, you know, this whole thing between business and, and government. Because I think there are people who concern that the, the long term competitiveness of the United States in terms of technology innovation is tied to this kind of Kind of work. So, w- w- what's your read on on that, and, and how we should think about that?
0: Yeah. So, I, I'm not. I'm. I, it's a great question. I'm not um, a deep expert in these kind of macro trends, especially for the business side. Uh, I do. I do know that um, in terms of government and federal government support, um, I do think uh, there are a number of other countries that are um, relative to GDP that are actually um, increasing their their R and D funding well above where we are at. Uh, our economy is larger than most of those, um, but the the trends are definitely where the they have a more positive slope i believe than than the u s federal uh, r and d funding i 'm not sure of the exact numbers, but I do know that there 's also some some trends where the say the number of publications, which is one way that you measure scientific output um, that which has historically been really dominated by the United States and parts of europe, uh, that is starting to be um, that lead is starting to be chipped away as well, but I don't have the
1: actual data, unfortunately. Great, 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 great. Yeah. no, I think there's, uh, you know, some, some concern about this. And I, as I understand it, there's what a, a belt and road initiative and some other things that China is are pursuing. Uh, and then I guess, uh, certain markets and, and it and others, AI and stuff that is focused on. So I think that's something we can all keep an eye on and maybe in some future program, have some more information on that. Yeah. Um, can you go down to your slide twenty-seven? Um, I thought that was such an interesting uh, point you were making in terms of how do you get from oh, I'm no, sorry, go back twenty-six. There we go. These two together, you know, how do you get from oh, you know, we got a good, we discovered something, a good idea here, but uh, well, what do we actually do with it, right? And I know there's uh, people who who know that at some point. Uh, the internet was offered to AT&T and they turned it down saying, Oh, we have no idea what we would what we'd do with that. Um, and then not to just pick on them, but, uh, if you look at the early reading when the telephone was, uh, you know, being spread, they couldn't figure out what to do with all the capacity and they thought we'd be, we'd be listening to classical music on it. Uh, which is not, not, not what we're, we're doing, but this whole notion of, uh, you know, what's the market need? Is there somebody already out there doing this? Uh, do you have a real business model to make this work? You know, maybe you can talk a little bit more about that. It seems to be a really tough problem.
0: It is, right? Because the the natural way to start a company is, and you see this in a lot of more traditional companies, is you see a problem in the market and you create a solution based on the problem, right? That's called a MIST. So market in search of technology, MIST. Um, when you have a new scientific discovery, um, you're kind of, you don't get to choose the nail you're given a hammer by nature right by your research and uh, you have to go find a nail you don't get to pick it out and so that is a much more awkward uh process for sure um and so uh you know this is um this is something that um it's interesting but you know the the real learning and understanding and best practices on this only really happened in the last 10 or 15 years where like people realize there's actually a a way you can kind of develop a, a, a scientifically grounded approach to figure this stuff out, right? Because before that, it was really the the wild west, and um, and so yeah. So I think we've we've worked with uh, one of the leaders in the space is a guy named Steve Blank. He's written some of the the seminal books on how to understand customers' need, and he helped us develop this Icor program with one of our program directors, who was sick of seeing his companies develop great technology and then fail because nobody cared <laughs> what they were building. Right. Um, and so other, other people in in the entrepreneurial community have been hammering this, uh, this issue, like uh, Paul Graham, who founded Y Combinator, which is the, the most successful accelerator in the world. You know, his whole mantra is build something people want. <laughs> that's, so that's the so, the, so everyone knows that the question is, how do you figure that out? And, um, and I think, you know, the, the beautiful thing about this is it is a, We've created a way where it's a scientific process, right? These are scientists, and we're giving them a process. You have a hypothesis. This is who I think my customer is. What experiment do you run to test that hypothesis? Oh, you you need to go talk to customers. That's your experiment, and you have to. And the idea is get out of the building. The building you're in doing research does not have any customers <laughs> in it. So they make these folks go out and uh, and have these conversations um, to do that. So I think it's it's one of those things where we've kind of adapted the best practice that the private sector gave us. Um, for the scientific community that the NSF really understands.
1: Great, great, great. And building on that a little bit about, you know, uh, the customers, this whole thing around around diversity, I recall, several years ago I was in a meeting where there were some people talking about uh, driverless vehicles, right? And uh, there was a young lady in the audience who said, well, so if I'm in the back of a driverless vehicle and Someone opens the door and assaults me. What happens right And the guy on the uh podium said, "Oh, the camera will catch that." so she said, "What camera <laughs> 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 and so you know it, it was almost like you know the guy had all the technology and all the stuff in his head, right. but again, it was another situation where where he thought of a customer. I don't think he thought of you know twenty one year old young lady in the back of the car or, you know, and some people said, well, I'm not going to put my five-year-old kid in that to be driven to school and back because, you know, so this whole thing around customer discovery and diversity and inclusion, can you say something about that? Because that seems to be an issue that we don't always talk about or get at.
0: Yeah, this is absolutely a huge priority for us. And so, um, I mean, the, the issue of basically what NSF would call broadening participation, um, we, you know, the scientific community and the entrepreneurial community definitely have demographic imbalances in the community. And uh, NSF has as part of our broader impact, as I mentioned, one of our three criteria, uh, broadening participation as part of it. And there's a number of ways we we um, implement kind of initiatives to try to help move that needle, um, you know. There's, there's a bunch of uh, organizations that support, um, especially, say, um, racial and ethnic minorities in these areas um, to kind of get the word out and, and get them to apply and support them through the process. Um, and the main thing I think that we do that just tries to get as many people from every walk of life involved is that we try to make this process less bureaucratic and more uh, welcoming to folks, so you don't have to be an expert in government funding. You don't have to be a, a scientist at a university. Try to make the process a little more human, a little more personal, and um, and uh, and also to try to really try to, as I mentioned, to try to fund a lot of new folks. Right? So I mentioned more than half the folks we fund are brand new. The only way you're going to change the pipeline is by funding new people, and so uh, we really try to take that into heart. Um, we have a number of kind of programs that support participation by underrepresented groups as well during the award that I, I can go into more detail. But there's kind of a holistic approach to all these aspects. And it's it's really important because there's so many problems to solve and there's so much um, difficulty in all these the scientific work that we need as many talented people as possible. We can't afford to leave any part of society out of this process. It's an incredibly important process. So it's absolutely a, a huge focus for us.
1: Right, right, right. Um, one question we have from one of our uh, listeners is, is uh, does NFL, NSF really just focus on undergraduate uh, universities, or wh- what's your look there?
0: I mean, so um, NSF programs at all levels of education in, in the science and, and engineering area um, – I mean you know most of the funding is for basic research and so most of most of basic research is done by faculty members and staff and grad students that's most of it but there's a lot of projects that have undergrads involved um we have funding in the small business programs I mentioned that allow our folks to get additional support to bring in undergraduates also to bring in uh, veterans to bring in in some cases high school students to try to try to get those folks a um, what they would call an alternative research experience. That's not necessarily going and being a professor, but you know, maybe they graduate and they wanna start a company, right? I, I had this experience know, I, I thought I was gonna go and be a scientist at university or something. And then I happened to fall, fall into a startup at, when I was finishing grad school, but I had no way to know that was a, a route I could take. I didn't thought about it seriously. And so to try to be able to provide opportunities where people can see that there's more than one path to being a scientist or engineer, uh, especially when a lot of these folks who are graduating now, really want to have a, a tangible impact on the world. That's that's really important for a lot of them. So we try to give the students different paths to work with our companies and to see the potential that they could do that as well.
1: Right, 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 right. A um, couple more questions here. Uh, and this one, I'm going to see if I can phrase this the right way, but it has to do with uh, this concept of, of sovereign wealth funds, right? Because there's some people are concerned when they see like Google on your chart there, like they, they, those guys are billionaires, right? Well, what happened to the government? Did the government get any of that money? Did, should we have had stock in that thing? Or you know, so this thing around are we giving this stuff away too cheaply? Or are we not, you know, making sure that the, the taxpayer gets a return on their investment? I mean, can you wrestle with that a little bit?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great. I mean, that's a great kind of. Um almost Solomonic dilemma, right? Or discussion. I can, you can see great arguments on both sides of that. Um, So the way that we think about uh, this, this sounds kind of like a return on investment question is, is based on job growth and taxes, right? So it is very indirect. Um, There's absolutely, uh, this is obviously not in my pay grade, but there's absolutely an argument to have some more direct payback when you fund something that's successful. Can you, can you get a percentage? Um, the trick there is that it it's you risk the issue where you um, you hurt the chances of the company by creating these strings and by maybe taking a position on the cap table. You know, our investors who put who put money in our companies uh, after we fund them are already a little worried about what does it does the government have strings here that they're gonna they're gonna screw something up, and so the the magic of kind of how we can help these companies. Um, there's a trade-off between you know, getting that money back directly and maybe the chance that you're making it less likely that they can succeed. So there is no direct payback. The idea here is that um, the, the capitalist motive will lead this technology to its best purpose and that, by the way, when we're evaluating these things, we're looking at the broader impact. And so if we see that maybe this is a... Billion dollar company, but it's not going to help. It's not going to make anyone's lives better. It's maybe going to make people's lives worse. That's something we take into account. And sometimes that's the reason we don't fund what is otherwise a great company. So we have that kind of um, societal angle that we apply as well.
1: Great. Okay. So one more question, then I'm going to thank you. So, how, how can a regular citizen uh, get involved in this kind of thing? Uh, you know, we got a lot of s- smart people who. They're curious. They want to know, and, and they may have some good ideas.
0: Absolutely. So, um, I mean, there's a number of ways in. I, I would say um, one thing I didn't go into too much, but the you know our whole our whole agency, what we do is we 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 get people propose projects to us, and we decide we have to decide which ones to fund and which ones not to fund. The way we do that is by a process we call external merit review. And external is because we bring in smart people from outside the NSF. They're not government employees. They're people in the, in the world who know about science, who know about technology, who know about startups to give us advice and also to give feedback to that applicant. So if a small business... Per- sends us a a proposal uh they're going to get feedback from experts in science and technology and startups telling them okay this is good you should you should fix this so if anyone in the in in the country has interest and expertise in any of those areas startups or investments or any particular area of the economy where there is r&d we would love for them to volunteer to be reviewers and to help us make good decisions and to help give guidance to these startup companies um if they're interested in potentially participating uh we have um we have program directors that are that are always willing to talk to people who just call us up and maybe give us a sense about what you're doing and whether it might be a fit. Um, I get I have talked to two or three of those people per day. It's great to hear how people are trying to change the world, and so um, they're welcome to reach out to me directly, and I'll try to figure out if there's something in our foundation or maybe somewhere else that's a good fit. Um, and the other thing I would say is, you know, um, there's these entrepreneurs need a tremendous amount of peer support. And so, if you're part of a if you're part of a network where there's there are startups or entrepreneurs, there's lots of ways you can help be an advisor or supporter of them through the normal networks, not necessarily through NSF, but through normal networks. You know, our entrepreneurs, it's incredible the amount of support they get from people who don't have a a, a dog in the fight. They just want to help somebody do something important. So, so yeah, help help an entrepreneur, and uh, and maybe that's uh, that's a great way to give back.
1: Great. Well, Ben, you've done a f- tremendous job. Uh, A lot of good information here. Uh, Not very many questions left here, so I'm going to let you get back to your uh, evening. There, I have to tell people you're on the East Coast. A little bit bit later for you to us out here. But again, thank you so much for sharing this valuable information. We appreciate your time and your energy, and uh, look forward to you know uh, great ideas coming out here and changing the world.
0: Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Bye, everybody.